You're listening to your superpowered mind on the Superpower Up podcast, the show that investigates the innate power within your brain to create lasting change. Hello, everybody. Welcome to your superpowered mind. This is Kristen Maxwell, and in this show, we explore the process of transformation and give you tools and strategies that you can use to transform your own life. Today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Stuart Eisendrath about the power of mindfulness to ease depression. Dr. Eisendrath is the founding director of the University of California, San Francisco Depression Center. He is also the author of When Antidepressants Aren't Enough, Harnessing the Power of Mindfulness to Alleviate Depression. A senior physician and research psychiatrist at UCSF, His lectures on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for University of California TV have been viewed more than 1.5 million times. Dr. Eisendrath, welcome to your superpowered mind. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm very excited to have you because depression is something that is everywhere or or in many places. So, and you seem to know depression. (laughs) With with studying it, and I guess where I want to start is is to ask you first of all, what superpower did you uncover as the result of mastering your mind? Well, I'd say a primary uh, power has been uh, the manner of which you can decenter from your thoughts feelings and sensations. Decentering is gaining some distance from those things. In other words, you can identify with your observing self so that you can observe yourself experiencing those thoughts and feelings and sensations. It's kind of like uh, you're in a town that has a series of storefronts and there may be certain negative thoughts, for example, in those storefronts. And of course, negative thoughts are very common in depression. And with depression, you might go into the store and buy those negative thoughts, accept them as if they're facts, and then go on your way feeling more depressed. But as you gain the ability to decenter from those thoughts, you can walk down the street, you still notice the thoughts, but you don't have to go in the store and buy them. So in that sense, you start to decenter from those thoughts and basically change your relationship to them. So you're not a slave to the thoughts. You can focus more on what the facts are. Right. And so I guess what I, what I am curious about is because as somebody who has myself experienced, I used to have fairly significant anxiety for decades and depression. When I was in the midst of the of that, I felt as if I was trapped by my thoughts, as if I could not escape them. And they all felt true. So how, how do you teach people or how do people learn that those facts really are not true? Does that make sense what I'm asking? 
Yes. Uh, I, I would just uh, revise that slightly to say that those thoughts are not true. The thoughts are different from the facts. So, for example, if you're doing a meditation and focusing on your breath, your mind is going to be popping up thoughts just like a popcorn popper. And if you're depressed or anxious, they're going to be <clears throat> depressed or anxious thoughts. But for example, in depression, there are many negative thoughts that occur. I'm no good. I'll never be successful. I'm not as good as uh, my friend. And people are more successful than me. You might even have the thought, uh, others are meditating better than me if you're in a class. <laughs> right. And uh, what you learn is <clears throat> those thoughts are not facts. They're just thoughts, mental events that you're having. So, for example, if you have one of those thoughts, you can let your uh, let that thought pass by and bring your attention back to the object of attention. Say, if you're meditating on your breath and focusing your attention on your breath, you can allow yourself to have a thought and then gently escort your attention back to the breath. And in that sense, begin to learn how you may treat those thoughts a little bit differently, but a little bit differently has a major impact on your life because you're no longer a slave to them. Right. Yes. And I think there is a sense of when you are in your thoughts, in depression or anxiety, in your thoughts, there's a way in which if the thought comes up, you feel like you need to talk yourself out of the thought or um, engage with it. So you're saying that people can learn to see that the thought's there and not get sucked in by it, sort of. That's exactly right. Because, uh, for example, uh, I've had depression myself and also migraine headaches and pain in general, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, is something that you can learn to decenter from. For example, once I was having a pretty severe migraine headache and the first thought is, oh, this is terrible. This is, how can I function like this? I've got a big talk, maybe a big podcast I have to do in the next day. And how is it going to be if I'm like this? But then I began to decenter from it. And I, by that, I mean, I adopted a position where I could say, I could observe myself having the headache. Instead of just being stuck with the headache, I could actually, it was as if I was looking down on myself having a headache. And that allowed me to dramatically feel less pain because it's like observing somebody else having the pain and having that ability to decenter from the sensations and that experience has a dramatic effect on, on how you feel about it. Yes. Yes. And as you're talking, it, it, it's reminding me that I learned at some point, and it still comes up for me sometimes, is I will have a thought of, I don't fit in, like with I'm with a group, or I'm not doing this right. And I have learned 
that that is my pattern to go into that way of thinking, whether, you know, who knows whether it's true or not. Maybe it is in some cases, maybe it's not. But that's my pattern no matter what. And so when I can look at that and say, oh, wait, that's just my pattern, then I don't have to, then I, I'm able to put it away a little bit like, oh, I don't have to think about that. That's, so that's, that's right. That you're able to gain some distance from that and see that that's really just a thought. It's not a fact that you don't fit in. It's a thought that you don't fit in. And you don't have to uh, be beholden to that thought. You can just view it as a mental event is going on and yes. give yourself a, a little more time to say, perhaps, is that a fact or is it just a thought I'm having? Right. And given the fact that, I, that it comes up and over and over and over again, I can sort of say, oh, that's just what I do. That's just how, <laughs> what I do. And aren't I silly? <laughs> like, don't do that. So we have to go to a break. So before we go to a break, and I want to go into really talking more about how people can get into mindfulness to ease the depression, but where can people learn about your work? Well, uh, the best place I'd say is my recent book that came out earlier this month. It's called When Antidepressants Aren't Enough, uh, uh, Harnessing the Power of Mindfulness to Alleviate Depression. And it's uh, available uh, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Indie Books. And people can go to my website, www.stewarteisendraft.com. And either of those will have a great deal of information about mindfulness and how it can help with depression and anxiety. Great. And I'm going to, well, in the notes, we'll have the spelling of your name so people can find that too. So hang on. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, everyone. This is Tonya Don Reckla, Executive Director of Superpower Experts. And we want to thank each of you for making Superpower Up the number one podcast network for personal development and spiritual growth. Because people like you have the courage to say that mindfulness, healthy living, disrupting reality, the pursuit of consciousness, responsible entrepreneurship, and radical parenting matter. We now amass over 1 million downloads monthly in more than 90 countries. Our numbers keep growing because there are far more people willing to live divergently than mass media wants to acknowledge. For you, the change makers, the light bearers, the way showers, we say thank you. If you're ready to take the next step in your evolution, go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz. And as Neva Lee Rekla, our youngest podcaster, likes to remind us, remember, we all have superpowers and we can change the world. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking to Dr. Eisendrath about mindfulness and depression. And one of the things that is... I remember at some point being surprised to learn this is that antidepressants actually don't work for a very large percentage of people. Um, what, can, what can you tell us about that? Well, antidepressants can be life-saving for certain people. So I'm not against antidepressants, but the reality is antidepressants don't work for a good number of people. If you take people who, and give them a trial of an antidepressant for 12 weeks, and this was carried out in the STAR-D trial, 
about 30% of them will have recovered. If you give those the rest of the people another antidepressant for an additional 12 weeks, 50% of people total will have recovered. But that means after 24 weeks of antidepressants, 50% have not recovered. And of course, many people never even get an antidepressant to begin with. The most common treatment for depression is no treatment. It doesn't get recognized. People are stuck in their depressive thoughts and don't and believe those depressive thoughts, so they don't seek treatment to begin with. But even if you do seek treatment, the most common treatment is antidepressants. And as I mentioned, 50% of people are not going to be fully recovered despite two or more antidepressant trials. So we need to have something available to help people beyond antidepressants. Yes. So how did you get involved with, with studying mindfulness-based cognitive therapy? And maybe you can tell everybody what that is. Uh, well, I got involved uh, because I had a personal experience with depression, uh, which really motivated me because anybody who's had an experience knows that it's a very painful condition. So that was a good stimulus for me. And then I uh, began to uh, learn about mindfulness and took a mindfulness-based stress reduction course and found that it had a dramatic effect on alleviating the stress in my life that was associated with depression. And I began to learn more about mindfulness. And uh, when mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was first developed, I began to see it as a technique that could be very useful in helping those people who didn't respond fully to antidepressants. And mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is really a blend of mindfulness meditation that's 2,500 years old, along with some aspects of cognitive therapy. Uh, so it works by helping people gain that decentered view. It offers them an ability to be more uh, compassionate with themselves and be gentler with themselves. And it is very effective in preventing relapse in depression. Because another problem, problem with depression is that it tends to be a recurrent illness. So if you've had one episode of depression, there's a 90% chance that you'll have another episode in 10 years. And uh, you really need to have some techniques that are available to help prevent those relapses. Yes, but I didn't realize that the, the, the relapse rate was that big, 90%. What I, what I think is interesting that you just said is that is that your method can help people to be compassionate with themselves. Because I do know that in my own experiences and the people that I've seen with depression and anxiety, there's a way in which you beat yourself up. Like, why am I like this? I shouldn't be like this. And it almost then starts to become another thing to be depressed about. <laughs> so how does it help? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's completely correct, that humans are unique in uh, adding suffering to the package. So people can get depressed about being depressed. 
like I shouldn't be this way. I'm a failure because I'm depressed. It's a moral weakness that I'm depressed. And if you compare that to somebody who has diabetes or asthma, if they have an exacerbation, they usually don't add that kind of suffering to the package because they know it's a recurrent disease. And uh, the same doesn't apply to depression. The person adds that self-criticism and that worsens the suffering that takes place. It does. So, so let's say, because I always like to know how, <laughs> how people do things. So let's say somebody is um, suffering from depression or anxiety and they would like to try uh, the mindfulness, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and I'm going to call it MBCT because it's just easier to say. So they're going to buy your book because I, you know, it really walks you through but what, how, where do they get started? Where do you get started if you're, I'm depressed and I want to try something different? Well, there are various ways of uh, learning about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Uh, in the book, I give some resources where people can find it. There's actually uh, an, a website uh, that I give that uh, allows people to locate uh, people who are certified MBCT teachers around the world. And in addition, uh, you know, if you Google uh, MBCT in your area, you can probably find some people who are offering in your area. But reading the book actually is a, a good introduction to MBCT because, as you say, it, it walks you through the typical eight-week program and I have associated with it on my website the meditations that you can download or stream. So it fits in perfectly with the book and really gives you much of what you would get in the live course. So either way, taking a live course or walking, reading the book and using it that way offers you a very good approach towards uh, learning the techniques involved. Yes, and I do, you know, looking at your book, the fact that you have recordings that walk people through meditations is very helpful because in my experience, especially when I felt like I had no control over my thoughts, um, it was very helpful to have somebody guiding me. Otherwise, my brain went off into its own little merry-go-round circus. <laughs> so... That's one of the things that I think is um, really interesting is that they've been they've discovered that depression actually impacts the structure of your brain and then have further discovered that these mindfulness techniques change the brain again back. So can you tell us something about that? Yes. In uh, our studies of, of MBCT, which were sponsored by the National Institute of Health, we studied people both clinically to see whether or not they improved and better than uh, a control condition, and they did. But we also uh, studied people in terms of their brain function. As you mentioned, in depression, there are certain abnormalities in the brain. The emotion-producing areas of the brain are uh, higher and the emotion regulation areas of the brain are lower. 
than normal. So what you have is emotions tending to rule the brain, as it were. And in, you can see this on functional MRI. That's MRIs that measure the blood flow to the areas of the brain, second by second. And <clears throat> what we found after eight weeks, those patterns reversed to normal. So the emotion regulation areas came up and the emotion producing areas went down. So people actually had uh, a return to normal brain function after eight weeks of treatment. So this means that learning this technique isn't just smoke and mirrors. You're actually changing your brain function by doing the meditations and by learning the techniques. This, there are, the techniques are really skills that you build on and learn, just like other skills, like learning the, how to play the piano. You start small with you know short pieces but as you gain experience you become more proficient at it and as you do so your brain actually begins to shift more towards a normal state that's fascinating and i think that findings like this can really um, act as motivation to really try this it's not you know, sort of in air quotes, just learning how to, you know, be still or still your thoughts. It's literally changing your brain. So exactly. that, yeah, that's very powerful. So one of the things that um, you you say in the book is, which I thought was interesting, is it was a quote along the lines of, we don't have to you know, root around in our past and our childhood to find out why we're so upset and distressed, but that we can choose to change our relationship to our past. What do you mean by that? Well, that some forms of therapy look for the origins of depression and anxiety in the past, in childhood events. And what we learn is that really isn't so necessary. For example, when I was first depressed, I had uh, quite a few guilty thoughts. That, uh, that, And my therapist at the time said, well, we have to find out what you're guilty about. Maybe you committed some crime when you were a child, <laughs> or you wished you had committed a crime, and so on. And I spent a fair amount of time digging around trying to find that. Mm -hmm. Only as I learned more about depression did I learn that guilty thoughts are symptoms of depression. It doesn't mean I committed a crime. It, those are symptoms of depression, just like uh, suicidal thoughts are symptoms of depression or other kinds of negative thoughts. We can actually look at depression, and we now know the top 30 thoughts that occur in depression. And for any one given person, they have their own top 10. It's like Letterman's top 10 thoughts of depression that they have. It's their depression signature. And, it, and by learning to change your relationship to those thoughts, you don't have to be a victim of them. And so digging around in the past is not so helpful as being able to change how you relate to them in the present moment. Yes. And so that is, again, very powerful. So there are this, I mean, just even knowing these things alone should 
could help people to alleviate some of their own um, angst about having depression or anxiety, which is that if your brain is off in this way, these are the thoughts you're going to have. And it's not a problem with you that, that these are truths. These are just the thoughts that come up when your brain is altered, perhaps, in this way. And maybe that's, I'm sure that's grossly simplifying it, but. um, No, I think you're right on track because those negative thoughts are, are, are symptoms of depression. Just like everybody knows if you're depressed or somebody is depressed, they may have changes in appetite or weight or sleep or movement or energy level. Just like that. Negative thoughts are symptoms of depression. They're the cognitive uh, component as much as the physical component occurs. And so if they have those negative thoughts, the trouble with depression is you, in depression, your mind generates negative thoughts, and the negative thoughts feed back and worsen depression. And what mindfulness does is break that link so that even if you're having negative thoughts, you don't have to accept them as being true, as being facts. You can see them with a decentered viewpoint and let them go. So they fade out of your focus of attention. Yes. Yes. So it's a way um, of almost coming up with a reminder with, as you see your thoughts coming up, just saying, that is just a symptom. That's not the truth. Some sort of reminding thought to center you back again of, wait, that's not true. Yes, I love that. So I guess one of my, one of my other questions is so many people know that meditation is good for you. And yet they have tried it a couple times and they haven't been able to make it stick. Do you have any recommendations for them? What would you say to get started? Well, I would say often people don't stick with it because they have misconceptions about it. They think that they or they've heard that meditation is completely emptying your mind of thoughts. It's uh, having a completely still mind and so on. And actually, uh, that's not true. Even the most experienced meditators, Buddhist monks, who've spent tens of thousands of hours meditating, still have wandering thoughts. So don't be so harsh on yourself if you notice your mind wandering. And be gentle with yourself. Apply self-compassion to it. And uh, I would say I would start with brief meditations in the book and on the audio tapes, uh, audio files, uh, there are very brief meditations, three-minute breathing meditations, for example, that you can use wherever you are. And you, meditations can be even briefer than that. For example, focusing on your breath for as you count up to the number 10, and just counting 10 breaths can be a very brief meditation. But when you learn a meditation like that, you learn you can do it anywhere. You can do a three-minute breathing space, 
while you're on the bus or while you're at the airport or while you're uh, in between classes. You can do it very easily, but it's important to remember that you really need to be uh, kind to yourself and realize when your mind wanders, it's not that you're failing, it's you're doing what minds do and gently escorting the attention back to the breath or whatever else you're focusing on in that particular meditation. And you're building a skill so that over time, you may do somewhat longer meditations, but even if you don't do longer meditations, that's okay, because we don't really know what the exact dose of meditation you need to benefit. There hasn't been studies that have really pinned that down. And a recent study, in fact, showed that just 10 minutes a day may be perfectly fine in terms of benefiting yourself. Yes. And I would say that now knowing this, knowing that you can literally help to change your brain through meditating, it's worth, that, that gives it extra um, motivation to really just go ahead and go through the discomfort of wait, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to harness my crazy thoughts. <laughs> so, yes, that, that's, that right there, I think, is, is very helpful for people to know. So it's almost time for us to wrap up. Is there anything else that you would want people to know if they are, you know, if they're struggling with anxiety or depression? Well, I'd say one of the essential things about mindfulness is learning to focus your attention. So there's two forms of mindfulness. One is sitting, a meditation in which you're sitting and focusing on the breath or some body sensation. But the other form of meditation is what we call dispositional mindfulness. And in that, you, pay, you learn to pay attention to things not in a discrete meditation, but as you're doing them. So, for example, paying attention to the sensations in your feet and lower legs as you walk or paying attention to the vegetables you're chopping. So you can bring meditation, in a sense, alive to your everyday experience. And doing so may also be very powerful. So as you walk, as you notice the sensations, you begin to become aware of there's a really quite a variety of sensations that you're having in your feet as you pay attention. And so you can apply mindfulness in a variety of settings and all of it is really helpful in producing change. Yes. And that is, if I can second that, that has been very um, much my experience. And what I found is that if if I could make it part of my routine so that I didn't even think about it, it's literally, I live in Southern California. So I'm, and I have kids, so I'm driving children around a lot. And I, when I first started doing it, is I set the habit of every time I got into my car, I would focus in on my body and where I was feeling tightness and just do that while I was driving. And it just became my habit to do it. And it, ended up being a very, I learned how to center myself. 
by just having that routine that I would just remember to follow. You have to maybe put a post-it on your car to remember at first, (laughs) but um, that's great. So it's something you can do in your life. Yes, that's right. Post-it's a good idea. Yeah, it really is. We forget. We forget to use our tools sometimes is what I've discovered until they become habit. And then they just become part of who you are. And then you remember to breathe and to shift your thoughts. So, well, thank you so much for, for doing this work and for sharing this work with everybody. And um, remind people again where they can learn more about your book and your work, if you would. Okay. The book is called uh, When Antidepressants Aren't Enough, Harnessing the Power of Mindfulness to Alleviate Depression. And you can find out more about it at my website, www.stewardeisendraft.com, or on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, The book sites also have much of the information. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening in and for knowing that you do have the power to change and transform your world. Until next time. Are you ready to discover your superpowers? Go now to superpowerexperts.com and take the superpower quiz today. 